Hello and welcome to the NeuroNoodle Network Podcast News and Notes Edition. I'm P. Jansons and alongside me will be Anthony Ramos. He's a passionate, enthusiast, and connoisseur of technology content in the realms of mental health and well-being. In our show, we delve into the latest news, innovative research, and emerging trends in neuroscience and mental health. Anthony brings a fresh perspective as a dedicated follower and fan, sharing insights and reflections on our past NeuroNoodle Podcast episodes, as well as his take on the latest developments in the field. Whether you're a professional, a student, or simply someone fascinated by mental health and neuroscience, join us as we explore these topics in a format that's informative, engaging, and accessible to all. So without further ado, let's dive into what's new and noteworthy in the world of mental health and neuroscience and just plain old technology. Let's hear Anthony's thoughts on our previous discussions and current trends. The NeuroNoodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. Mark your calendars for Friday, April 26, 2024, as Bradley University hosts the 8th Annual Super Brain Summit, presented by the Center for Collaborative Brain Research. This year's topic, Rhythms of Regulation, Polyvagal Perspectives, promises an insightful exploration through polyvagal theory with Deb Dana, LCSW, leading the discussions as a featured speaker. Dana is a celebrated author and clinician, brings her extensive knowledge and practical experience to the forefront. The event will be held at the Hayden Clark Alumni Center's Peplo Pavilion, available both live and online, ensuring accessible participation for all interested. For those looking to register or seeking more information, please contact Gwen at ghowarter at bradley.edu or by phone at 309-677-3900. Further inquiries about the program can be directed to Dr. Lloyd Russell Chapin at lar at bradley.edu. Don't miss this enriching opportunity to engage with the latest advancements in brain research and polyvagal practices. News and notes, what do you got? Yeah, I have a lot. Um, well, did you guys see, I don't know if you want to start with something funny, but I did see how, uh, did you see how Jason Kels showed up at the uh, Super Bowl the other day? Um, <laughs> I'll screen share, but... Uh, I actually had a cool encounter during the uh, um, during the uh, Super Bowl. So this is how he uh, showed up, apparently. So I don't know if you can see that, <laughs> like the guy from Hanging Cover. But um, love that show, love him. Yeah, um, and uh, you know, I guess I guess uh, somebody asked me who won. I said Taylor Swift won. So there you go. Um, but it was a good day yesterday. I actually, uh, we talked about neuroscience for most of my Super Bowl. I, uh, really? I happened to meet through a friend, a, a UF neurologist who, as you know, are the one type of doctor who uses EEG. And so I was able to talk with her a lot. And kind of the first thing I wanted to address with her is why aren't we using this for more things, you know? Yeah. And, uh, she was very cool person. I want to say if she, if she ends up listening to this. Really appreciated talking to her. Um, and one of the things she said is, she said that um, epileptologists in different parts of the country are trained differently. And so she says, uh, if you get a report back from an epileptologist, because an epileptologist is a neurologist with a special certificate that takes like one to two years more of training, let's say. Those yeah. are those EEG fellows that my other doctor friend was talking about. Yeah. They, um, she says, because they're trained differently in different parts of the country, you'll get a different result back, um, depending who you talk to. And she says, you don't know how to trust it. And so, um, I would love to hear what Jay says about something like that, uh, as I'm sure you probably would. Um, I would guess that maybe, you know, maybe the training could be, uh, more standardized. Um, but you know, I think that maybe our, our treatment could be a little more standardized. I um I'm always nervous about recommending neurofeedback to friends in different parts of the country that I don't know someone like you guys. Um, because I don't know what kind of training they're gonna get. You know, um, there's probably lots of approaches that work, I want to be clear, or that can benefit people. Yeah. But I don't yeah, what's that? Well, the two things that I bring up with Jay is number one, yes. once AI figures out how to <laughs> the um artifacts mm -hmm. and yeah once we get this regulated licensing because anybody can 
put up a shingle and buy uh, an amplifier and say, uh, that's an artifact. This is this. You should do that. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. Yeah, I guess we don't have um, standardization. I guess doctors have that barrier to entry of many years, and we don't quite have that yet. I, I know every brain is different, okay, but you can have something that's, you know, why the BCIA, I would think they would be a louder voice in all of this to say, well, I'm accredited, you know, with them and get more people to to buy in. And it's a shame your your friend uh, is saying that, uh, yeah, yeah, it's good stuff, but, you know, we're only using it for uh, ep epileptics. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, doctors joke about the neurologist and she, yeah. she fessed up to this, the favorite joke of neurology or doctors is i don't like calls from neurology when they call they just say metabolic encephalopathy and they hang up and, and the doctor's like i have no clue what that means that doesn't tell me anything so i i'm guessing the neurologist would like more tools to do their job and so it's a little bit it is a little bit puzzling i talked to uh, my close md friend after we spoke last podcast yeah um, and he too is a little puzzled he said you know it's interesting that we don't use eeg more considering that we do use it for one thing so it already has in a way like a foot in the door yeah. and he says i just don't he he's like i don't quite understand he's like i feel like it must be a culture thing he says it's it's so different from most of the things we do and maybe i was discussing with the girl yesterday the neurologist that maybe it feels a little bit woo to people you know like um not fully based in reality or something but we we know it is and I talked with her and she was actually very receptive to um, all the other things that can diagnose in mental health, like the epileptic discharges. Um, and I was really glad this was the last thing uh, from talking with her. Um, I told her about the, the 40 Hertz stimuli that we talked about last time where they flash like a light or play a sound at 40 yeah. Hertz beats. And about uh, a little while later, she says to me, after I'm continuing to talk about neurofeedback, she goes, you know, a colleague of mine, or I think maybe her boss or something, her attending said, um, hey, there's this new thing called cognitotherapeutic. I was like, what's that? She goes, it's something like gamma stimulation. It's, I was like, that's 40 Hertz. That's what I was telling you about. And she goes, yeah. And I'm like, I'm gonna look it up. And I look up the company. And sure enough, the founder of the company is Lee Wei Sai, the exact doctor, MIT doctor I told you guys about. Uh, last time and that I had already told her about. And so I said, I'm so glad that you brought this up because now you know I'm not too on the fringe here. If your own colleagues are kind of bringing up with you some of the stuff. I did like that she knew one last thing. She knew about the sleep spindle, which makes sense. That's what we train when we train uh, SMR training. Um, but she, obviously she didn't know that it can be trained and improved. Um, but it, she was receptive. I'm going to be go ahead and email her some of uh, the research Jay points out on epilepsy, yeah. like his case study with Isabel. So um, trying to do get get our word out however we can. So we're we're trying to pick up chemical energy, right? Like in your heart, you get an EKG, right? There's yeah. Do, do people believe in that? And so so they don't believe that there's chemical en energy in the brain and if it's different in certain places they don't buy into that there's going to be differences or outcomes I, yeah or get a baseline I, like like i said last time you go to you get a physical right mm -hmm. EKG, blood pressure all that stuff and nobody's looking at the noodle <laughs> you know exactly my my md friend said the same thing as jay interestingly he he'd never heard jay say this but somehow he said yeah it's like when you go to the cardiologist you might uh just have heartburn or you might have you know a horrible heart issue and he doesn't know until he does a test yeah and uh the difference is that the medical community doesn't yet sort of acknowledge the validity of our test is basically yeah. unfortunately yeah. But we're going to get there. And you know what I did let her know is I let her know that fMRI is not as valid as they think. And I told her about the dead salmon experiment that Jay talks about. And I told her about um, there's a Duke meta study of like 57 studies. I have it uh, here if anybody ever needs it. But um, basically it says uh, if you put the same person in fMRI twice, you'll get a different result both times. It's just not. I mean, and I have a, I, there's a, there's a chain I have on Twitter that I saved of it's academics who are basically as angry as we are saying, 
man, whoever's using fMRI, they just need to like, just stop what you're doing because there's no, there's no validity to it. So, so anyway, we'll, it, it might just take some people becoming knowledgeable or someone like Jay or people like yeah, us just yeah, trying yeah. to clue these people in. So well, what like you got to keep talking about. So Google picks us up. Did you see in the Washington there post you. today, they had a number 55% of okay. people that get talk therapy do it online. Interesting. Okay. Did they say that was good or bad? Or how do you feel about that? <laughs> well, yeah. it depends if I had a license on the wall. Um, I, <laughs> yeah. Because I, you know, because of the pandemic, uh, mm -hmm. now now that it's over, people are you know doing the face to face, and yeah, look, it's whatever works. <laughs> if it's working, yeah. great. If, if it's not, then don't. You know, I know a lot of clinicians in our field have utilized that to do at home care, at home training uh, over Zoom or what have you. They send you home with the the hardware. Yeah, yeah. Um, but even that sometimes can be a little bit little bit dangerous in the sense um you know uh there's a company that i've used before that i i think that there's there's some value to their product it's called mindlift a lot of people have heard of it therapists can use it on their own to send with their client home but they also have this service that you can subscribe to and you get connected to um, a therapist of theirs and one of the concerns i have and i've known a lot of people that have used it now and you can hear you can talk to them uh, a lot of them post on places like reddit that if you tell them you have anxiety, they're going to raise frontal alpha. And yeah. if you know the phenotypes or if you listen to Jay, you know that frontal alpha is associated with ADHD. It's associated with dementia even um, and even things like depression and OCD. Why would they be doing that? And I think it has to do just a little note for your listeners. My theory is it has to do with the phenomenon of rebounding or compensation. So when you train in the wrong direction, there might be, and I think I've observed with some folks, that you rebound in the right one temporarily. So for after that session, people will report to me, raising alpha feels good, uh, but um, may not be good long-term. And there are cases, uh, because this is one of the things I wanted to talk about, um, I've spoken to people myself multiple times, probably like once a week. The story is this. My therapist has been raising my frontal alpha and it felt great at first, was helping me. And now after about the fourth or fifth time, all it does is cause anxiety and depression. And now the worst part, one guy, he's in a university trial of neurofeedback. He says they were raising my alpha. Now they can't get it to go back down. With the, When I say can't, he says, I get lots of side effects when they try to turn it back down. So he now is who knows, potentially stuck in the state. And so I'm bringing that up and I probably have more to say to that another day, but it does concern me when people are not using research back methods uh, or something um, like Jay's phenotype method. Um, anyway, so wanted to go there when we, with regard to standard of care and like the variation, we, do, we don't have a standard of care yet. So. What, what's next on your list, Anthony? Been waiting well, a long wanted... time to see this list. Yeah, I've got a lot of um, different topics. I, I sliced it up several ways. Okay. But basically, if you if you have a topic you want to hear about, you can shout it out. I basically have some of my craziest articles on a variety of topics today. Okay. So um, I can pick or we can, you know, you oh, can- Oh, go right me... ahead. Throw them up. I, that was my one. Yeah. So just with respect to um, what we were talking about last week about um, trauma and addiction are correlated. Um, I'm going to share again, cause I got a study yeah, go here, ahead. Um, that, uh, shows a theory of mine. Well, seems to validate a theory of mine as to why they might be correlated. So, um, there we go. Okay. This one's on effects of childhood adversity on smartphone addiction, multiple, uh, mediation of life history. So what is this about? So last week I told you guys that trauma is a 4,600% risk factor, according to, um, Kaiser Permanente in the CDC for addiction. So if you suffered early life trauma or you have PTSD, it's a lot more likely that you will have problems with addiction at some point in your life. And I try to, um, you know, give my opinion as to why I said, you know, uh, there are brain changes that happen. Uh, trauma can be, it's almost like a physiological insult to your brain uh, in terms of inflammation. And a study this past week did come out and said that PTSD 
is associated with gene changes in the brain. Um, so, uh, and as we know, uh, if the genetics change, the cells change and the physiology may change what's going on in there. But I had an idea, I was thinking, okay, so if trauma is associated with addiction, you know, addiction is associated with uh, shorter term uh, preference, uh, your preference for instant gratification would be a good way. That's one way to think of addiction. You know, we know this cigarette or this beer may hurt us, but we we want it right now. We'll worry about the long term later. And I also thought about how we talked about how both Jay and the addiction MD I mentioned, Howard Wetzman, talk about how addiction and ADHD are correlated. So I was like, okay, so you have these people who they've been traumatized. So now they have a short term preference. They're thinking short term and they have trouble paying attention. They're more impulsive. I was like, what would explain that? And I remembered a friend of mine, she's a UF psychology researcher. And she mentioned um, that there's these things in psychology called a short life strategy. And a short life strategy, as opposed to a long life history, they call it, um, or a slow life history, a short or fast life strategy is when you're just worried about what you can get now because you don't think there's gonna be another tomorrow or your, your body doesn't or your brain doesn't. And I said, that would make perfect sense to harmonize why, or at least it provides a, a reason as to why an, a, a traumatized person may become this short-term addict. And so looking for their short-term fix. And so I just did a little Googling on that and I came up with this study on smartphone addiction. And it's funny because they literally say, um, risk factors of smartphone addiction, like emotional instability, insecure attachment. You had, I think her name was Dr. Ruth Cohn on here a couple right. of weeks ago to talk about attachment. Um, and anxiety are positively correlated with a fast life strategy. That's a direct quote from the, uh, so they're saying smartphone addiction and fast life strategies like short-term and impulse control problems, those are all correlated. And they said they think this might be because the these people who are traumatized are more eager to satisfy their need for reassurance th that the smartphone affords. So they're looking to get this uh, this. Um, anxiety in a way controlled by the smartphone. And another way to say it, I think a lot of, you know, doctors will talk about dopamine because they don't use the EEG. They'll say, you're trying to get that short-term hit. <laughs> and in the popular news, we all know people describe Facebook and apps. It's almost like a dopamine machine, things with Instagram. Um, but really uh, we know what they're doing is they are uh, the, the anterior cingulate seeking something to lock onto. And it's locking onto the phone. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. And it kind of, you know, it's hard to prove theories like this, that that's why uh, traumatized people become addicted. But it makes a lot of sense, I felt like. All of this may come back to attachment. You know, Dr. Cohn on your your podcast uh, a couple episodes ago, right. she said that children that are not given the affection by their mother, she said frequently an avoidant mother, which I'm going to get into one day with you, um, things yeah. I've read about attachment. These children have a skin hunger. They're seeking contact. Um, but another way to say it is they're seeking, this study used the word, the smartphone provides reassurance. And my addiction MD that I like, he says, he says, I think of attachment, or so I'm sorry, I think of addiction as an attachment disorder. You're trying to replace what you didn't get, the stimuli, the stimulus. If you just think of love as a stimulus, providing yeah. dopamine and other good neurochemicals, you're trying to get it through something else as an adult because you didn't get it when you're younger. And I think you mentioned the first five years are crucial. I think I've heard that 80% um, of your brain is developed by age three. That is kind of ridiculous. What's not developed are your executive control functions, which those are things that Jay will tell you are compromised in like 30% of addicts. That's the interior cingulate decision-making. And there's a uh, there's an ADHD doctor on uh, YouTube and TikTok named Dr. Dr. Barkley. And he agrees and he says, ADHD is a developmental disorder and it corresponds to that executive function never develops fully. And he says, uh, without treatment, now he he recommends drug treatment and, and we think we know of a better way, obviously. But he says, without treatment, it, it's they're never going to catch up because it's developmental. So they lose all that time. That's normally supposed to be done through nurturing, affection, attention, even just interacting with the child. Um, facial learning, facial expressions. I remember that you guys too had that podcast on uh, white noise recently mm -hmm. and that you may be blocking out stimuli like the phone ringing or daddy and mommy talking or what have you that the child should be learning from. Um, and then the, the last thing is 
in all of this smartphone stuff, and I think Mari may have said it, be yeah. it smartphone, video games, any addiction, part of what may be going on is not just um, this may change your brain because it may, um, but it might be what you're not doing. So other studies talk about if you're if the child's playing too many games, that they are um, not outside uh, playing. If they're playing video games or if they're playing on their phone, they're not socializing face to face with other kids. So um, I think that that might explain why we're so tempted by the phones is because a lot of us maybe didn't get some of the interaction that we needed as children. But um, fortunately, you and I and, and Jay and others, we we know a way that might help. Um, and that's addressing the problem at the anterior cingulate. That is, you know, the anterior cingulate is not the only phenotype that Jay talks about in addiction. He's got that ADHD uh, medication targeting paper. The other phenotypes involve things that are more about anxiety and arousal. Um, and so, and even the beta, spin, beta spindles and epileptic discharges. And those require different medications as Jay likes to talk about. But um, so we have a more targeted approach in a lot of times than a lot of doctors. All right. So the next thing I want to mention, it just kind of riffs on that that topic that we've been talking about, about how addiction is an attachment disorder. Bobby. And what it says is or could be. And what this says is teens exposed to parental fubbing tend to have more sleep problems. And what this is talking about is um, fubbing is a phenomenon uh, in the popular you know, lexicon or whatever that uh, basically you're funny that the uh, I don't use it either but the uh it's when you ignore somebody because you're on your phone and so um you know uh how does this connect to sleep well um the kids are much more did the study not, okay is it study? okay that was it sharing now I'm gonna stop share okay but um the uh the uh things that we're doing it's like feeding the brain um and if you're not doing it it's gonna be very um it's going to change the child's development. You know, maybe it's just that they have more anxiety because they weren't getting that reassurance of the child and that's why they're not sleeping. Yeah. But, um, you know, Jay likes to talk about half of ADHD may just be sleep. Um, some of this may be from obesity, like stuff from sleep apnea, but 75% mm -hmm. um, of ADHD sufferers have poor sleep. Um, and so according to studies that I've found, there's an 8X risk of sleep apnea among uh, sleep uh, poor sleep ADHD uh, sufferers. And uh, anybody who has sleep apnea, uh, including kids, um, they have a 95, 95% of them have attentional deficits, which makes sense if you're not getting that deep sleep, deep sleep, all this may compound because deep sleep, I think it was on uh, Huberman's podcast, but there's other studies on deep sleep. It's associated with anxiety reduction. And so if you have anxiety, you're going to be less able to focus at school and at work. Um, and even just recovering so that your attention can return. Um, so uh, I think it's important. Um, and one last thing on that concept of addiction, uh, maybe an attachment disorder. Wetzman likes to talk about, um, it is called, um, the word addiction comes from a Latin word, I believe it's adesire, and what it means to, uh, to give oneself over to. And he likes to say, it's referring to one's attachments. And so when we can't get it through human empathy and connection, we might be trying to get it through the phone. Um, so, or anything else, the bottle, or unfortunately, you know, so it's kind of sad, but yeah. yeah. Is there, uh, and let me know if there's any topics you, you want me to dig more down into. Um, no, nah, yeah. you can almost do a screen share of your uh, Facebook uh, group and just the topics yeah. that have come up, if anything comes up. Okay. Um, this one's about how the brain responds to reward. And what it specifically says in this study is uh, children who are from wealthier backgrounds have a uh, lower reward sensitivity to specifically in this study, economic, um, but uh, meaning uh, monetary incentives. But I think Jay, you guys probably remember, I know you remember that he talks about how uh, addiction and anterior cingulate problems are frequently a reward sensitivity issue. And what does that mean? Um, well, there's some physiology that I can get to, but basically they're too sensitive to reward. They're seeking things, short-term fixes like the phone. And um, Wetzman actually talks about this other MD, um, if you want to think about it, because I think thinking about other models can help to almost confirm our intuitions or, or our data on the EEG, is that um, if you think of your dopamine or right here as the... Um, uh, like a level or the activity yeah. is this level. 
and there's a baseline that you want. An addict is frequently down here. And it depends on their phenotype. The EEG phenotypes control this. But when an addict gets a little bit of dopamine or they get a stimulus, whatever it is, food, phone, drink, whatever, mm -hmm. they spike much higher. The average person may go to here. The, the addict who is below baseline goes way higher. Unfortunately, he when he when that's done, it goes way down below baseline again. And so what happens when he's down here? The body is craving for more. It's uh, sensitive. It's looking for that next fix. So he gets these big spikes and that is the reward sensitivity. He's more sensitive. And so it kind of makes sense that children who are of higher socioeconomic, meaning they're wealthier families, yeah. they're less sensitive to reward. Maybe it means that they're just getting more rewards. That's very possible. But it also could mean that they developed differently. Um, yeah. That in childhood, they were um, had blessings that maybe some of us don't get, be it financial, but also through the love and attention. They have a mom that can right. spend more time with them. You know, there's a study uh, recently that screen time, we think of screen time as, well, maybe social media is the problem. But what they said is children who have more struggling families, lower socioeconomic backgrounds, less wealthy families, they spend several hours more on the phone per day. So the phone, while um, it's worth being concerned about, there's reason I think to be concerned, it also may just be a symptom of what they're not getting. So um, I thought this was a cool study because it kind of confirms uh, things that Jay has said about these people are sensitive, they're too sensitive to reward. From the corporate background, being in sales, there are just some okay. people that aren't motivated by money, yeah, you know, they or risk. You know, they okay. it, you can either go into sales, take risk, where a part of your comp, a larger percentage of your compensation is at risk because it's dependent on a bonus. Uh, some people want to go that way, have a higher, they want to take a risk, like in a higher reward, or they don't want to take the risk. They go into customer service where there's lower risk, but their, their, their money's, you know, guaranteed. I wonder if that has a, a role to play in it because, you know, the mm -hmm. old days was, you know, first place is a Cadillac. The second, second place, you get a set of steak knives. <laughs> so That's funny. Yeah. Go, what is it? Coffee is for closers. Yeah, coffee is for closers. I love that movie. Um, so yeah, uh, and I I've done a little bit of uh, sales and things like that myself, and always been interested in entrepreneurship. And so yeah. while you were talking, I pulled up this article. Yeah, it says ADHD may be an asset in entrepreneurship because those people we could conceive of it to build on your comment. They're sensitive to reward. So if you to be an entrepreneur, you got to be scrappy. Those are the guys out there scrounging for looking under the trash can, so to speak, for the value. I had a professor because I studied business at UF and he he said uh, one time, the entrepreneur is the guy looking at the cracks in the sidewalk and he's looking at the stuff other people don't see. It kind of it's kind of funny because, you know, Jay talks about there's multiple patterns at the interior cingulate um, and failure modes, he calls them. And that could be too much theta, beta or alpha. And one thing I've noticed is um, the behavior seems a little bit different depending which one they have. And I think Jay would agree with that. Um, for instance, uh, I've heard Jay say that if somebody has too much alpha, and I could I could be wrong here, I'm paraphrasing, so Jay can correct me, feel free. But yes. if they have too much alpha, he said that is similar to a condition called akinetic mutism, which is, in his uh, words, a lack of dopamine so profound that the person cannot even speak. And this is a real disease. And I think what I'm, I think I'm paraphrasing Jay correctly, it corresponds to too much alpha at a certain piece of that interior cingulate. But the behavior differs when um, individuals that have too much theta at that interior cingulate, you know, it's interesting. I was picking up, Dr. Barkley will talk about ADHD sufferers, and you may have heard this too colloquially, that if you have ADHD, you may be inattentive, but sometimes they can lock on. And Jay will talk about that anterior cingulate locking on. This may not be that, but it's similar. They can hyper-focus. Dr. Barkley calls it perseverate, meaning you persevere yeah. on the same thing. Jay, I think, has mentioned that's an inability to take yourself off. So they may look like a hard worker, and in some ways they are, but they can't take themselves off the task. And I heard that um, a friend of mine, he has taken, you know, he's prescribed with ADHD medication from a young age. And he says, occasionally, as an adult, I still take it. Um, uh, to do his work. And he said, you know, it's interesting. When you take Adderall, things like spreadsheets, 
become very interesting. You will bury your head. He's like, all I want to do is work when I'm on that thing. Um, the uh, Andrew Huberman of Stanford, big podcaster too. He says, if someone has motivation, it is always and everywhere a function of dopamine. And I, I think the, the phenotypes Jay talks about are probably more important than this neurotransmitter stuff. Yeah. But I think people are familiar with neurotransmitters. So it kind of can flesh out my argument here. And then the last thing I want to mention, have you ever heard, Pete, of the concept of flow? It's flow state. I've heard of it. I don't know what it is, Anthony. Please tell me. Yeah, there is a psychologist. And forgive me, it's a, it's a longer name. I think it's like an Eastern Europe. It's very long. Normally, I'm okay. We'll put it right here. Yeah, please do uh, <laughs> when you have it. Um, yeah. And uh, the uh, it's it's a state called flow where you are um, you lose sense of time. Uh, you become work becomes effortless. You have a uh, hyper focus. There's a sense of enjoyment of what you're doing. And there's a little bit of challenge, but not so much that you can't do what you're doing. Well, I found out that uh, theta waves are the representative of flow. And so I guess all this is building up to say, I'm finding, and, and others may find differently, that people that have the elevated theta waves at their interior cingulate, as opposed to some of the other waves, that those people are the ones that hyper-focus. So when I think of the person putting their head to the grindstone, in my experience, the people with elevated theta waves are actually very good at doing that. But the danger of it, as, as Barkley and as Jay say, is um, you may not be able to pull yourself off the task. And one of the dangers that the psychologist who came up with flow talks about, he says, hey, you can just read his quotes on the wiki. Um, they asked him about uh, benefits of flow. And like one of the first things he wants to talk about is the negatives, which I thought was interesting. He says, flow is only useful and needs to be looked at in the context of uh, your integration with your family and society. So if you are too focused on your work, you're a workaholic and you're neglecting all your other responsibilities, he says flow is not a healthy state. And it's funny because there's all sorts of internet gurus and podcasters that will talk about flow. They co-opted flow. Um, Stephen Kotler is a big one. Maybe he would acknowledge this, I don't know, but all you hear about is flow is healing. Flow is so wonderful for my body. I, I got better from Lyme by surfing because of flow is his story. But you know what? If you're always in flow and you never stop and you never sleep, and you don't spend time with your family, at the end of your life, and this will come up when, one day when I talk about attachment theory with you, at the end of your life, they don't ask people uh, on their deathbed, people do not say, I wish I had gotten that extra promotion. Right. I wish I had become CEO. The cliche, but it, apparently that Harvard study where they followed people for 50 years, yeah. the things that made somebody happy at the end of their life were their relationships. You really, I just, and it, it almost seems impossible but you never hear people talk about my career was what made my life uh you know wonderful or whatever so anyway these things um adderall may be doing this to people you know there are studies on adderall and ritalin that say in some ways they actually compromise your performance um they hurt your performance the work of ritalin users is lower quality work the work of workaholics is uh they actually may be less productive in some ways because it's what they're doing and is what they're doing what they should be doing. So anyway, um, wanted to talk about those waves in more detail because I've been picking up on those those subtle differences in personality based on which brain wave. Drives me crazy to think that a MD to go through residency would pride themselves on lack of sleep. <laughs> yeah, what do was they that? still Hustle do that? <laughs> yeah, remember that. And and this is now it, for a long time. I feel like the 2010s hustle culture was the thing. And yeah. You know, people like that, that will brag, oh man, I only ever sleep, you know, six hours or whatever. Um, yeah. I, I definitely... You have a cup of coffee every 15 minutes or yeah. meth or, or you Adderall, whatever, you know, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's quantity, not quality. Right. And or that can be a red ADHD sufferers apparently have a higher response to stimulants. And that may correspond to that reward sensitivity that Jay talks about. And um, it makes total sense. But, you know, uh, that could be a problem. And they may be over-reliant on stimulants and then it hurts their sleep. Uh, there's a recent study that caffeine can actually hurt your memory, uh, believe it or not. Um, and uh, it's just interesting. Um, you know, oh, here's what I was going to talk about. I feel like modern society does seem to value those states of hyper-focus. 
they modern society seems to value the workaholic. I can't tell you, I, I picked up on recently, there's several times I'll hear people say, you know, that guy, he is a piece of work, man. But I'll tell you this, he's a hard worker. You'll hear people say that about their, about their coworker. And it's like, yeah, but is he making everybody's life miserable at the office? And is he, and is he selling anything? What that's, is it? The, that's a guy that makes all the phone calls, contacts everybody, but sells nothing. Yes, but he's a hard worker. Exactly. It's like, what are they doing? We in society, and there's a, it's like we pride activity over product or value. And uh, there's a professor that talks about this, um, Ian McGilchrist. Um, at Oxford. He's a neuropsychiatrist. Uh, and he talks about the difference in the hemispheres of the brain, because there are differences, uh, believe it or not. And, and I think we we can, uh, a lot of EEG people would embrace that. But he says, we as society are viewing um, output as the primary uh, value and not like, uh, it's like that Jurassic Park guy. It's like, we thought so much about whether we could, we never stopped to ask whether we should. Um, so yeah, and I think we're getting out of control on the, um, we need to, oh, here's a good stat to back you up. I read this a long time yeah, yeah. ago. Um, salesmen are not promoted based on their sales figures, based on their sales. The most common, this is an actual study. The most common basis by which salesmen are promoted is their relationship with the boss. And so it would be cool if management of any company, you know, management studies and uh, academics would pick up on some of the psychology literature that we have and say, you know, maybe the guy who's a workaholic is not best for my company. I'll tell you what else. Um, and all these traits can be okay in balance. Commitment is yeah. good in balance. I just want to say, but apparently workaholics get sick more often. And it actually, there's at least one study I know, Adam Grant is a guy, uh, by the way, uh, Wharton School of Business. He's a psychology uh, professor, management psychology, I think, or mm -hmm. groups, something like that. He says, yeah, ultimately, workaholics are less productive overall because they get sick so much. And I think it probably also is this data stuff or this hyper-focused stuff where they can't be, they can't be, they're always organizing instead of getting, you know, the real stuff done. Anyway, so yeah, thanks for talking about that. I enjoyed that one. <laughs> oh, there's there's more, Anthony. There's more. Yeah, and I think you had background in sales with, uh, I should have asked earlier, but I think uh, like with Microsoft or something. So definitely oh, your the old, the old, Yeah, that was, that was fun. Uh that before that was when the internet was really getting going with something called sidewalk, which would be, you know, city search right. or, uh, you know, Google now. Um, oh, uh, but it was nice to see you had two, uh, two campuses, red West and the main campus and where you would have technology on one side and the sales on the other. And you could see right then and there that uh, technology was running things. You know, now now we have product led growth where okay you, you build a good enough product and you give it away a part of it for free and that'll sell it and you don't need the salespeople anymore. I saw that happening there. And okay, mentally, let's say people had traumas or growing up. I'm gonna to point to this and we'll cut. The reason why people don't do well in sales or 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 don't like risk is they take everything personally. And like the entrepreneurs, like you're saying, they let it roll off of their back because they don't like rejection. You have to mm -hmm. be able to hear no because you hear no quite a mm -hmm. bit. And some people take it personally and they can have their personal self and their business self. Those, those people that can differentiate be between the two can do well in a pay at risk environment like sales where you're rewarded for your productivity. I thought that's cool. Just one little note to you, because I I used I studied business and I've you know I've worked in businesses. And yeah. anyway, um, I heard a guy sales trainer one time. He said, a good salesman needs a mix of empathy and ego. He's like, there's a bunch of people they have the empathy, but they don't have the ego to ask for the sale or to do to push a little bit. Then there's other guys they have the ego, but they don't have the empathy. And that made sense to me. Um, I felt like I'd seen that a little bit. Well, they don't believe in what they're saying. And it's evident, or they don't understand what they're what they're saying. Yeah, and it gets back to what you're talking about at the beginning. Right. E either uh, they don't desire to have the reward because they've had everything, so money doesn't motivate them. Okay, to be a boss, abundance. Go on, abundance. right, right, right. So, so it all plays into so why technology, business, mental health. I think that yes. businesses could become more productive if they 
put somebody with an amplifier in their neurofeedback, especially yes. before maybe alpha theta trading before a, a, a sales training session. Before what sales training, okay, uh, sales yeah, yeah. training, you know, so they're in the, you know, so they can soak it in besides, you know, being, you know, like, you know, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's, there probably is room, you know, I heard a doctor, this is the only story that's coming up with that, but um, there was this doctor who said, uh, how do you take care of your kids or how do you make sure your kids are doing well in school and doing their homework? He said, I take them running. I make sure they do their running. And I think he's getting into, you know, we have other ways with neurofeedback, but he's getting into the physiology is controlling the decisions a lot of times. So, um, and you can make people more or less risk averse depending on how you train. Um, and that might to some level depend on the size of activation of the brain, which one day I'd like to talk about. Um, but yeah, I had a good, uh, another new topic just to fire hit up me, real quick and I'll share it for a little bit. Yeah, I'll share it. And then we will, um, talk about it some more, but basically, um, there was a really cool speaker on sleep, uh, at, on Andrew Huberman's podcast. This is the Andrew Huberman show. And I don't, um, I don't always love his show. He gets a little bit of flack because he speaks outside of his field a lot. Yeah. But this episode was on sleep, and she's from, I believe, UCLA, Gina Poe, yes, at UCLA. And she was actually really good. She actually is probably the closest to being as good as Jay on sleep um, because she actually is aware of the EG. She talks about it. She talks about sleep spindles and other things. Now, if you listen to this woman, I like what she has to say. I'm going to tell you. But at the end, Andrew Huberman says, so listen, you've told us how the sleep spindle is important and how it helps, you know, in PTSD, this is impacted, REM sleep, et cetera. So what do we do to get more stuff? And you, uh, once again, I was disappointed. Do you know what her advice was? It was, well, turn off your phone a couple of hours before bed and, you know, <laughs> maybe just try to do some relaxation and stuff. No, there, I, I know, I, I mean, I was a person that didn't work for, and there's, there's plenty of people I can tell you right now, unfortunately, it doesn't work for. Um, and I want to address that, but before I want to say the cool yeah. thing she has, um, did you know, and I didn't know until this woman, the brain gets up to, um, 60%, uh, smaller when, uh, you sleep. It's incredible. So the brain cells themselves get, uh, 60% smaller rather, but the brain yeah. gets 20% smaller. And why is it doing this? So she talks about, I'll take her off the screen share real quick. Yeah. She didn't have as much to say about how to fix it, but this is what she said. Um, Jay talks about slow wave sleep. Why are the slow waves important? So the slow waves are in the delta range. They're associated with deep sleep. And that is one of the reasons Jay tries to do SMR training or, or SMR training is done rather is because it increases those delta waves. Those delta waves have a really cool function I never knew until this woman. So the delta waves, while they're in delta waves, like one, two hertz to four hertz, let's say the brain cells actually shrink and they're doing it all at the same time, the cortex. So the brain shrinks by as much as 20% and then it expands again, shrink, expand. And what that does is it creates a pump function. And it's incredibly cool, I think, because what it's doing is that pump function, pump function rather, it invites in CSF fluid, cerebral spinal fluid, and that allows the brain to clean itself. And this is one of the best functions of deep sleep and why it's associated. If you don't get deep sleep, it's associated with a much higher dementia risk. Um, the other thing is our deep sleep declines as we age. There's a statistic out there. It's something like we lose like one to 2% of deep sleep for decade, which doesn't sound like a lot, but this is actually um, referenced as the main reason that older people do not sleep. It's kind of incredible because they're not getting deep sleep. And then the other thing is um, the glia that Jay loves to talk about. They do the housekeeping during this deep sleep. And this pump system is what is what causes it. The other cool thing that I found out, this just came out this week and everybody thought it was funny because Jay, Jay had something special to say on Facebook about this one. Yeah, yeah. This one is about uh, where this fluid that comes into your brain at night um, drains. One of the places that it drains is through your nose. Um, and I'm trying to get the study to come up real quick. Um, there we go. So I'll share that real quick so people okay. can see it. Uh, that was Jay. Jay commented on it, and it was pretty classic because, as you know, Jay's probably talked about with your viewers that he had that tumor operation uh, on his right. brain a while ago, and as a result, he has to deal with this brain fluid, and he do, it does drain from his nose. I hope it's not too embarrassing. I mean, he said it on Facebook, and he said it on here, and then 
he, I asked him just kind of, I was like, is it worse at night? He said, yeah, I do. I have to wipe the pillow when I, when I wake up because that fluid has a job to do. It's in your brain to clear it out. The interesting thing for the people who are kind of science wonks to see, you know, what yeah. that fluid, the way this is really working is during the slow waves, the brain cells go what's called electropositive. And when they do that, they use less bold or they use less blood oxygen. That's an MRI signal of perfusion. So they need less blood when they're electropositive. And that allows space for the CSF, the cerebrospinal fluid to come in. And then as it's pumped in, it's also pumped out. And that clears your brain of plaque. And by the way, to link it back to my first appearance, yeah. 40 hertz brainwave rhythm that we talked about with Lee Wei Sai, which I'm going to pull up her company real quick so people can see it. Sure. Um, that, uh, that, those uh, activated, that rhythm gamma, it activated the glia in her patients. And then at least in the mice, um, it reduced the levels of uh, amyloid beta plaque, which is, uh, and maybe tau, I can't remember which plaques, but it reduced plaques that are associated with Alzheimer's. So um, very cool stuff. And it all depends on deep sleep. So if you're not getting it, not only are you gonna have the short-term effects of reduced attention, but you're more likely to get dementia. And there's even a study I saw in the last week our ability to, um, it's called the glymphatic system. It's glia that clean our brain through the lymph node, uh, lymph system, the lymphatic system rather. This one doctor said, and I haven't vetted this yet, he said, by the time you're elderly, your function is 10 to 20% of what you were when you were younger. You can, your cleaning ability. So very, um, it seems like both SMR could have a huge impact on this, but so could um, potentially this treatment around uh, and I'll just share that article real quick for people yeah. to see this treatment around. This is cognitotherapeutics. Um, and uh, there you go. They do it with headphones and with light. So she does it with both because they seem to have maybe subtly different effects. So pretty cool stuff. And again, my UF neurology friend just yesterday, she told me that her boss told her about this technology. So this is real stuff that one day they're going to have to acknowledge uh, the stuff that you and I and Jay has been pioneering in for so long. Uh, he's been pioneering. We just, we just lump onto him. I go. A Anthony, are we done with yeah. your list? I have, I can go as long as you want. You, you no, know, I, I, reason, so let I'm, me know. I, I'll keep going. I, I just want to make yeah. sure people know how to get to your Facebook uh, page. Your uh, group. Yeah, um, I got a better way for them. It's uh, okay. Uh, I got. They can do me at. I've met some. Not do me. They can reach <laughs> me at. Uh, excuse my language. At uh, Tonio Ramos. That should take you right to my page. Okay. And um, that's where I share all this stuff. Um, I actually met a really cool clinician uh through your podcast the other day. Okay. They found on there and um they've already sent me some great materials actually it was a good conversation they called me this or not called me they contacted me this morning messaged me this morning and they said anthony i have a patient who has adhd and they have been prescribed uh they're diagnosed adhd they've been prescribed zoloft or sertraline they said is that a good medication for them and because of Jay and because of Martine Arns and you for hosting them, yeah. um, I was able to tell her about the Arns paper that Jay talks about. And what the Arns paper said is, if they know your alpha peak frequency, they can tell you which depression treatment works the best. And specifically, um, they found out that SSRIs are good for people who have what's called a, um, let's say like a normal alpha peak frequency around the 10 hertz range. But also, and this is the paper, Stratified Driven Psychiatry, I'll share real quick, okay. um, by Martine Arns. It was presented at Jay's conference in Sassoon. And basically, uh, oh, I don't have, I'm not logged in here, so it probably won't show up so great, but people can see the name there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's a chart in here. What it says is if you have a normal peak frequency, and, and Arns said this at your conference, most antidepressants or antidepressants will work better. They'll work, I think, actually still only 50% of the time. However, he said, if you have a slow alpha peak frequency below 10 hertz, let's say, and he has the measurements in, in the article and you can you can get to them from the study. Got it. Uh, the only antidepressant that worked right was sertraline. So it's Zoloft. So I told her it works well for people who have um, a slower to middle alpha peak frequency. So it could be the right prescription based on what you see when you do the EEG for her. And I sent her the paper. And also we know Jay's ADHD medication targeting paper, which I do have that one on my computer. 
Um, that one says there is a phenotype of elevated frontal alpha. That means if the child has, or the person rather, this is the paper, I'll screen share that one too, sure. that that allows them to know whether uh, antidepressants will be a right treatment, believe it or not, for their, for their uh, ADHD. You can use antidepressants to um, train, or I'm sorry, not train, to improve their ADHD symptoms. And um, so that sounded like a cool thing to share with her, which I did. I sent her Jay's paper and, you know, conceive at the very least, if that child wants to continue, that family wants to continue with medication, she'll yeah. be able to tell them, hey, listen, Jay says, the EG says, uh, Nature, one of the top journals that Martin Arns has published in, sertraline is or is not a good medication for the child, depending on what they're, and only we can do that. And that's one of the reasons why my MD friend that I've talked about before, he he's puzzled too. He wants to know why are we not why are we not using this uh, well enough in or enough in our practice? Yeah. Because he says uh, doctors would there are doctors who would kill the honest ones, the nice ones they would kill for something like this. I couldn't get the screen share to work there, but he says, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you know doctors. He likes to say they're in this on some level because they want to deal with people and with customer service. And yeah. I got to think most of them, they don't like, they don't want their patient to have to try three medications or they don't want them to have to go through extra anguish, you know? So uh, this could help them. Um, so anyway, so that was another topic I was happy to to hear uh, about this morning. Anthony, that 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 was a quick hour. That was a quick oh, awesome, hour. man. <laughs> I appreciate it. No, appreciate yeah, you, um, man. Getting a lot of positive feedback, and uh, oh, good. We will just try to keep pointing people to your to your group, and people have comments, put it in there, or give comments on YouTube, or whatever questions. You know, yeah. Just two two guys at the bar sitting down talking mental health, having a spark no, of water. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. And you know, if you if you have feedback for me, I'm willing to incorporate it. And I, I really appreciate the opportunity. I mean, I'm honored to be here with you, but also just to talk to people who care about people. I mean, that's yeah. why we do this, I think. Yeah. Hey, life is about feedback, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> we need I love it. that. I'm, I need life, to start using that. Yeah, go on. Life is all about feedback. Anthony Ramos, thank you for another neurofeedback news and notes on the Neuro Noodle Podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And good to see you too, Pete. Go Gators. Oh, thanks, man. All right, I'll see you. The NeuroNoodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. Mark your calendars for Friday, April 26, 2024, as Bradley University hosts the 8th Annual Super Brain Summit, presented by the Center for Collaborative Brain Research. This year's topic, Rhythms of Regulation, Polyvagal Perspectives. Promises an insightful exploration through polyvagal theory with Deb Dana, LCSW, leading the discussions as the featured speaker. Dana is a celebrated author and clinician, brings her extensive knowledge and practical experience to the forefront. The event will be held at the Hayden Clark Alumni Center's Peplo Pavilion, available both live and online, ensuring accessible participation for all interested. For those looking to register or seeking more information, please contact Gwen at G-H-O-W-A-R-T-E-R at Bradley.edu or by phone at 309-677-3900. Further inquiries about the program can be directed to Dr. Loy Russell Chapin at lar at bradley.edu. Don't miss this enriching opportunity to engage with the latest advancements in brain research and polyvagal practices.